So we're going to read from 1 Kings 22, verse 51, into 2 Kings chapter 1. So that starts on page 366. 1 Kings 22, verse 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned for two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and they said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to, t- to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order, come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants be yours. Be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. 
Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Brilliant, thank you for reading. When I was um, younger, I had to do work experience. I think that's still a thing. And um, it was very clear my dad was keen for me to become a lawyer. I think he's just about adjusted to the fact that I'm not. And I know there are some lawyers amongst us here. And uh, a few of us uh, may have been inside a law court. In fact, anyone here done jury duty? Uh, some, some people done jury duty. Um, I've never been uh, called on to do it yet. But I imagine one of the key issues is whether you can trust someone's word or not. Um, Just to think much quicker, the whole thing would be if we knew for certain whether someone was telling the truth or whether everything they say is a complete lie. Some of you might be out of a job very quickly if that was the case. Uh, In walks the defendant to the dock. Uh, The judge uh, turns to him and asks if he murdered the victim. And with that one answer, uh, the whole case is over. But we know, don't we, life is uh, we know uh, life is not that simple. Whole businesses, whole industries revolve around whether people tell the truth. Uh, We need to know whose word we can trust. And uh, even more so when it comes to the future. Actually, that's much harder, isn't it? Uh, So many people, so many adverts promise so much about what they will deliver. But how can we know who will deliver on their word? Will joining this gym, eating that fruit, using their brand of toothpaste really revolutionise my life, as they claim, or just empty my bank account? Now, this uh, chapter we've just had read uh, so well for us rings with the resounding truth that God's word is sure and will not fail. God's word is absolutely sure and will not fail. And the author wants us to share this confidence too. Uh, someone's uh, done the maths and one and two kings, they say, has a hun- uh, sorry, not 183 specific examples of God's word being fulfilled, uh, averaging about 1.8 fulfilments every chapter. Uh, People who like stats like that. Uh, But what it does do is it highlights for us, I think, one of the second major themes of the book. If this morning was particularly focused on God's governing king, uh, then this afternoon is about God's good, God's sure and certain word. And again, we get a question to which we, the readers, are already supposed to know the answer. So down in verse 16, the Lord says, through Elijah... Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Now, we, as the reader, are thinking, well, of course there's a God in Israel. And of course he's a God whose word must be obeyed. God's word is sure it will not fail. But if we've been learning that lesson, well, it seems the the kings in Israel aren't so quick off the mark. I don't know if you spotted it, but uh, the book of uh, two kings begins on a positive note. Verse one, Ahab is dead. If we'd been reading through at One Kings, we'd, we'd need no convincing. Even just that snapshot from this morning shows us Ahab is an awful king. He led Israel into sin. In fact, the author tells us to remember there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. But the bad news is Ahab Jr. follows him. And he really is a chip off the old dead block. The apple hasn't landed far from the tree. So if we uh, scan back to the end of uh, 1 Kings, which we had read for us, without any chapter or verse divisions, we'd be pretty hard pushed to see any break. They just follow one book into the other, really. And so as we move from Ahab 
to Ahaziah, it is no surprise to find the Lord God who's infuriated by idolatry and a defiant, dying despot. As I mentioned, two kings begins with that news. Ahab's dead, uh, but it looks as if Ahaziah is about to hollow, uh, follow hot on his heels. Verse 2. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, we don't know what he'd been up to, and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. We don't know what he's been up to, but he's had a fall. It seems it's serious. He's not sure if he's going to make it. So as he lies in the intensive care unit of Samaria General, what does he do? Well, he sends off his lackeys to get some info from Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. It really is a case of like father, like son. So I was going to call Ahaziah a desperate dying despot, but it gives the impression maybe it's only because he's facing death that he's going after Baal, but actually he is defiant. He's already had idolatry exposed. He may well have been present back in 1 Kings 18 when the Lord God of Israel utterly, comprehensively, convincingly proved he is the one true God and Baal is no God at all. Now, certainly Ahaziah would have heard about it, would have been front page news, the Lord God burns Baal to bits. In fact, the author, he's poking fun at Ahaziah. He's showing us how stupid idolatry is. In verse 2, Ahaziah sends for a message from Baal Zabab. It means a lord of the flies or the dung god. It is a corruption of Baal Zabul, which means the glorious lord. Now, whether it's deliberate or not, the Baal prefix tells us everything we need to know. Ahaziah is engaged in entrenched idolatry. Uh, we're nef- left in no kind of doubt about what king he is like. Just look at verse 52 from the end of 1 Kings. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. It's not some momentary lapse. He walked in the way. He embraced all the paganism, all the perversion that had built up in Israel. It's not like he he got this diagnosis and then just flicks through the yellow pages to find a faith healer. I remember chatting with a chap once who came round to clear the drains and when his mother had died he was desperately sad understandably and had tried every kind of spiritualist he could uh, contact so that he could get through to her. But this isn't something new for Ahaziah. Verse 53, he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. So this pursuit of Baal Zebub, it stems from a lifetime of seeking false gods. And it makes the one true God furious. It provokes him to anger. Uh, no reason is given why Ahaziah thinks Baalzebub has any answers. No, he's just simply following the exposed idolatry of his parents. But it does show us how stupid idolatry is. It disregards God's word and it doesn't take account of the evidence, even when it's exposed as false. So Baal has already been beaten back at Mount Carmel. Idolatry is a dead end and yet we all pursue idols. There's the daily temptation to believe that money or sex or career or family can give the security and satisfaction that only Jesus offers. That we know idols are dead and mute. And many of us know, even from experience, ultimately they offer nothing. 
and we've had them exposed in our own life and yet we find ourselves coming back again. The Bible is clear, sin is not simply rebellion, it is. It is also foolish and stupid. Any king of Israel should have known Ekron. It was one of those places where the ark went when the Philistines captured it. Do you remember that in the Bible? And the result was an outbreak of tumours and panic on the Philistines. Uh, The Philistine gods in Ekron couldn't stand before the ark, uh, let alone sustain the health and well-being of the folk living there. So why would anyone in their right mind go to Ekron of all places to find an answer for their health? But idolatry is stupid. And also it's deadly serious. Once again, God's word breaks into proceedings and underlines his opposition to idolatry. God's word, do you notice, it clashes violently with Ahaziah's word. Verse 3. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Three times we get the same refrain. You see verse 6, then again verse 16. And it shows us this central concern of the chapter. There is a God in Israel who's implacably opposed to idolatry, who can't be bullied and whose word will succeed. Given all of that provocation back at the end of at 1 Kings, verse 53. The Lord's verdict, verse 4, is no surprise. And just like Genesis 3, Ahaziah has swallowed the line. If he rejects the Lord God and his word, he will not surely die. But God is emphatic. Literally, it says, dying, you will die. In other words, God's saying, you will die. I mean, really, definitely die. There is a God in Israel, and he is opposed to idolatry. And doesn't the world hate this? Nothing is so offensive as the intolerance of God. If there is a God, people think, well, surely all religions lead to the same one. Maybe we've got friends, colleagues, family members who think like that. We just can't quite escape the shadow of Mount Carmel. There is only one God, and, and so it is right that he hates idolatry, worship of anything, anyone that's not him. Not only is it wrong... It is folly and it's deadly. And doesn't this also expose the futility of thinking we can escape death? Uh, Peter Nygaard, I don't know whether you've heard of him, I think he's embroiled in several lawsuits at the moment, but he is also an 82-year-old millionaire and he claims that through stem cell treatment he is getting younger and will possibly live forever. Uh, Two Kings 1 says, don't waste your money. Whether it's biohacking, I think that's all the rage, fortune tellers, whether it's our own bank balance or Baal-zebub of Ekron, there is no hope outside of Jesus. We cannot cheat death, and as we'll see in a moment, we definitely can't escape God's just judgment. Opposed by a defiant, dying despot, the Lord remains infuriated by idolatry. He is the same now as he was then, and it's why he will brook no bullies. He won't put up with opponents forever. There's our, our second point, verses 9 to 15. The Lord God who brooks no bullies. We see a protected prophet and a contrite captain. 
I wonder, as we were listening, did you think why Ahaziah would have been happy with a message from Baal? He just wants to hear back from Baal, but he wants to see Elijah personally. I guess maybe he thinks he can intimidate Elijah and maybe somehow twist God's arm into letting him live. Or more likely, he just wants to silence God's word by wiping out God's spokesperson. Verses five to eight, the king's messengers return, having been intercepted by Elijah. They repeat verses three and four. And as the police sketch artist puts the finishing touches to the picture, Ahaziah knows already who it is. Verse seven, he said to them, what what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Maybe Ahab and Jezebel had read him him bedtime stories about Elijah, the big boogeyman, to frighten him, that the hairy man who was out to get him. And so Ahaziah thinks to himself, well, if I can't get an answer from Baal, I'll get the answer I want out of Elijah. And so he sends off his troops to go and get him. And I wonder how you felt when verses 9 and 10 were read out. Verse 9, the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now, perhaps we think Elijah rather callous. Uh, Do we think it's a little harsh on the captain and his 50? But we mustn't sentimentalise this or forget what's going on. I just imagine 50 armed police turning up at your front door. Or, or imagine you're living in Nazi Germany and 50 men in army uniforms with machine guns rock up. Uh, you know what's coming, don't you? This isn't a kind of gentle RSVP, a dinner invite from Ahaziah. He's sending a whole platoon down. Uh, the fact Elijah's told not to be afraid in verse 15 exposes their intent. And the odds would seem pretty good for 51 soldiers to be able to bring back one man until we remember the Lord God is on Elijah's side. Uh, the Lord God cannot be bullied. Uh, but Ahaziah, he doesn't get the message. Uh, so he sends platoon number two uh, with an even more demanding order. Verse 11, again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, a man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. And exactly the same happens again. Uh, 51 charred remains are all that's left. Uh, So verse 13, Ahaziah sends a third lot. It underlines Ahaziah's intransigent idolatry, his refusal to budge. Even when 102 of his troops are burnt to ashes, even with such a vivid and clear reminder of Mount Carmel, well, he refuses to budge. You see, five times we read of fire coming down from heaven. Verse 10, let fire come down from heaven, then the fire came down from heaven. Verse 12, let fire come down from heaven, then the fire came down from heaven. Verse 14, behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. We get the point, don't we? It's like a a huge arrow back to that massive contest, which is no contest at all, really. Mount Carmel, when fire came down from heaven and he proved He was the one true God. And again, we get that proof loud and clear. There is one God in Israel and he's in total control. The fire acts as proof and it also acts as protection. 
Elijah as God's mouthpiece won't be silenced. And we saw earlier, didn't we, with Naboth. God doesn't always act like this to protect his people. Naboth, righteous Naboth, killed, disinherited. Elijah, protected. You see, it's teaching us God won't let his word be silenced. And this contrast with the apparent lack of protection of Naboth, it also shows us that God is perfectly able to protect his people. This side of the cross, the Bible is clear. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But we also know, don't we, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. We won't be protected by fire from the sky. I don't think that's God's normal way of working. But God still rules and he won't let us go. What does Jesus say in John 10? I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We can take confidence that God does protect his people, even though we face persecution. It doesn't guarantee physical protection in this life, but actually something far more profound, far more lasting. And supremely, God's word won't be silenced. Elijah is a protected prophet. But we also see, don't we, this contrite captain. With the, with the first two captains, it had gone a bit like this. You say that I'm a man of God. Well, let's see if I really am. And then, bam, they're incinerated. If the first two captains really believed that Elijah was a man of God, they wouldn't have treated him so contemptuously. And Elijah knows it. And it makes this third captain stand out. Just look how he approaches Elijah, verse 13. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50, and the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Perhaps spurred on by the sight of 102 charred remains, this captain fears the Lord more than he fears Ahaziah. Now, gone is the arrogant order. Gone is any pretension that he's in control. Gone is everything except a humble plea that Elijah view his life as precious. Now we could picture the abject terror in his eyes, sweat rolling down his face, his knees unable to knock together as he kneels before Elijah. Any second now he's just expecting a flash and then it'll all be over. But this fear is saving fear. Now people may turn their noses up at such ugly motivation to trust in God, but as one author puts it, better to be trembling and alive than a puddle of carbon. In fact, this uh, captain stands as a right response of terror before the Lord. It is a picture of repentance. He knows what's coming. He knows it isn't Elijah's life at risk, but his own and the lives of his men. And so he cries out for mercy. Hebrews 10 reminds us that for those who reject God's word of salvation, there only remains a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The captain knows this a truth that Ahaziah so evidently fails to grasp. It could be even on a church day away like this, you've never really fully considered this truth. You've never actually taken that step of repenting, of recognising each one of us deserves God's just judgment. 
God is a just judge, but he's also gracious and forgiving. The cross shows us far more clearly than this captain could ever see God's justice and his mercy. Ahaziah gives us the warning. I think the captain gives us the encouragement. He wasn't any better than the first two. He was just humble and contrite before the Lord. In Luke chapter 9, we read of Jesus being rejected by a Samaritan village. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Perhaps having this passage in mind. But what does Jesus do? He turns and rebukes them. We don't rain down judgment on people. Now is the, the day of salvation. But if people keep refusing to repent, judgment is what they'll face. Describing the church in Revelation 11, John says this, If anyone would harm them, are the two witnesses picturing the church, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. It's not saying you and I will have an invincible life now. It is saying God's word cannot, will not, will never be silenced. And to reject God's gospel word is still to face certain death. It is a a profound encouragement to all of us to repent of our idolatry. Certainly been a challenge to me to come in reverent fear before God, to acknowledge my sin, uh, cry out for mercy and forgiveness. And if we do that, we know the fury of God's fiery anger has been dealt with through the cross because his word is sure. And it brings us on to our final point this afternoon, which is as simple as it should be unsurprising. It comes in the last four verses at the Lord God, whose word will win a definite decree. And we'll pick it up halfway through verse 15. Elijah arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord, because you've sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, Is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. For the final time, we get God's words, you shall surely die. Ahaziah has listened to the oldest lie in the book, you shall not surely die. He'd refused to repent. He he had been given two warning shots across the bows, but he had stuck like glue to his idols. He had failed to take God at his word. And so the reign of Ahaziah comes to an abrupt and an inglorious end. He died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Kings come, kings go, but the word of the Lord stands forever and will not fail. It's the Lord who's in complete control. His word, his word alone will succeed. Ahaziah's word, well, do you see how much it completely fails? His messengers never make it to Ekron. And it's only when God says to go down, verse 15, Elijah responds. But as I was saying, one of the major themes of 1 and 2 Kings is God's word always being fulfilled. We saw it this morning, we see it again here. God keeps his word and we can be confident he keeps his word. Ahaziah got it so wrong, didn't it? Verse 16, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? There is 
a true God and he is a speaking God. His word is where we look. Struck me, it's, it's worth looking back, isn't it, over the last week, the last month, the last year, and think, where are we turning for answers? Where are we listening? Where are we looking for guidance, for satisfaction, for life? Where do we turn? This episode says, turn to God's sure word. Because if we're not listening to God's sure word, then we will be listening to the lies of false gods who are no gods at all, and the lies that money can satisfy me, and that all religions are variants of the truth, and that sex outside of marriage has no consequences, that, that, that I can rescue myself from God's judgment. How quick we are to look elsewhere, even as committed followers of Jesus. Apparently a bishop once said he was going to give up the Bible for Lent. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? It is surprising the lengths some people will go to to avoid engaging with God's word, but it shouldn't shock us. It should be a great comfort to know that God's word will stand. As 1 Peter puts it, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And God's definite decree, his sure word, means there'll be no miscarriages of justice. You see, a few weeks ago, there was that news story about Andrew Malkinson, wrongly imprisoned for 17 years for a crime he didn't commit. He might get compensation, I think it's going through the courts at the moment, but he can't get the time back. Or depending on your stats, between a third and a half of all murders in the USA are unsolved each year. Guilty people walking the streets scot-free. People ask, where's the justice? And again, God's word breaks in. God's good word stands firm. Jesus says in John 12, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. It's exactly the same, isn't it? Ahaziah or the third captain. If we remain proudly defiant like Ahaziah, keep pursuing dead idols, keep thinking we can deal with our own mortality, keep rejecting Jesus' words and rejecting him, then the only possible outcome, according to God's sure word, is judgment. But if we receive Jesus' words, there is life. If we repent, there is forgiveness. If we turn to God in humble uh, contrition and cry out for mercy while well, Jesus takes God's fiery fury for, for us. God's word of salvation still stands. So will we listen? And will we speak? Will we speak God's words to a world that so desperately needs to hear them? Because God's word will win, we can proclaim it with confidence. That what an encouragement to tell people about Jesus the third captain came in fear, not shoring whether he would be turned to toast or not. Living this side of the cross, the same fear, the same reverence is due God. But we can have complete confidence that those who do repent will find forgiveness. God's word is sure. So let us get on with trusting God's word. Let us get on with obeying God's word. And let us get on with proclaiming God's word. There is a God in Israel who is implacably opposed to idolatry. He's infuriated by it. 
but he is the one true God who cannot be bullied and whose word will always win. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity in your word that you are opposed to idolatry and that that is right and good because you are the one true God. Please forgive us when we have ignored your good word, when we have worshipped created things, things that are no God at all, when we've not given you the glory that is due your name. Thank you that because of Jesus' death on the cross we can repent and we can be confident of forgiveness. And thank you that you are a speaking God. Please would we all be those who heed your word, who humble ourselves before you in reverent fear. Uh, Thank you that we can trust your sure word, a word of judgment, but also a word of forgiveness for all who turn back to you. Please help us to keep coming back to your definite word, to keep listening to you day by day and finding life and joy as we do so. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.